welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, my name is Colleen Petrus. I'm an advanced cardiovascular fellow at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm here with Dr. Alberto Pocatino, associate professor of surgery here at Mayo Clinic. He completed his cardiothoracic surgery training at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was a consultant for 18 years. His interests include adult congenital, lung transplant, and aortic surgery. The majority of his cases involve complex aortic disease, which makes him an excellent person to discuss our current topic, type B aortic dissection. Hello, Dr. Pocatino. How's it going? We'll start with a case. Uh, This is a 65-year-old male, history of hypertension, presenting to the emergency department following acute onset of severe back pain. Um, He's in mild distress. A CT scan was performed and shows an aortic dissection from the left subclavian artery to the aortic bifurcation. Um, We'll start with his presentation of symptoms and your thoughts. So the age group and the hypertension are pretty classic for type B dissection. Most patients are uh, in the older population compared to type A dissection, tend to be slightly younger. The, the, The first thing to look for in a patient with type B dissection is uh, uh, investigate both clinically and radiologically whether the patient has mild perfusion. So you want to divide the patient whether it's a uncomplicated versus complicated type B dissection. So you look for peripheral pulses. If they're present and equal, you know at least uh, the the limb perfusion is is normal and that's not an issue. The other, uh, sometime more difficult to, to figure out is whether the patient is clinically uh, abdominal malperfusion. So obviously all signs of uh, gut ischemia need to be looked for and often sort of pain out of proportion uh, to physical exam is one of those things that we always have to keep in mind. As you review the CT scan, you want to look for uh, branches at the level of the abdominal aorta celiac uh, SMA and renals. It is usually the rule rather than the exception then one of the kidneys comes off the true lumen and one comes off the false lumen. Now, as long as adequate perfusion is noted, just the presence of a renal artery off the false lumen does not qualify as a complicated type B dissection. However, if one kidney is completely dark and not perfused, uh, that typically is of concern. Now, traditionally, just one renal artery malperfusion has not been sufficient to call a patient a complicated type B, but it's one of those gray zones where you know the creatinine is going to bump in this individual. And it often does, even when you don't have an obvious uh, malperfusion to one kidney. But is that enough to justify intervention? Um, so th- those are the things to look for. Okay. What do you think about classification of this case, Stanford versus DeBakey classification? So the, I personally like the DeBakey classification because it's more anatomic and tells you more detail what you're dealing with. However, the Stanford classification is, in a way, simple-minded. 
Type A you operate immediately, type B you don't. And and that's kind of the, the beauty of it. it. It kind of dichotomizes your behavior up front. Now obviously type B is is uh, a more complex dissection, you know, looking at what to do next. Where type A, in a way, you kind of know what to do. You, you have to o operate and it's just a matter of what operation and, and sort of what you're going to do next. And the type B, unfortunately, over the years has become a, a, an area where a lot of different specialists have gotten involved. Uh, Sometimes by default, the cardiac surgeons have let that go because they're too busy doing other things. And to, to, to a lesser degree, the fact that the majority of the patient up front need to be managed medically has made the medical world kind of own more of that than than the surgical world. So a lot of cardiologists, a lot of uh, uh, internists that, that manage blood pressure mm -hmm. will get involved early on and, and manage the patient primarily. Now, as far as intervention, because over the last decade or so, in endovascular treatment has become the next mode of intervention. Uh, whoever does endovascular treatment in a given institution ends up being the primary caretaker of that individual. Uh, keeping in mind that if that doesn't work and if there are some rupture complications that requires more open intervention, often uh -huh. the thoracic or cardiac surgeon gets involved late. So I think it's important, leaving aside, you know, who should or shouldn't take care of this patient to stay involved as a cardiac surgeon because uh, anything that is done to the patient uh, may have consequences where cardiac surgery is involved ultimately. Uh, now, if a patient has any signs of complicated type B, and again, the classic definition of complicated is malperfusion plus rupture or contained rupture. Now the additional softer complicated definition would be radiologic malperfusion where you look at a CT scan and a vessel is out or nearly out or has the appearance of, of being intermittently compromised but the patient has no clinical signs as yet of abdominal pain and all the, the clinical signs of malperfusion. That's more of a soft call. The issue is that, you know, are you going to follow the patient very, very closely all the time? Will, will the patient intermittently have ischemia and, and you, can, you could miss it? The other part of the equation is what's the downside of intervention? The downside of intervention, now we're talking about endovascular treatment, is a retrograde type A dissection. So if that were not an issue, one could argue that most patients should be treated regardless. The problem is that there is a finite risk of retrograde type A dissection, which, depending on which series you look at, can carry a mortality of 25 to 50%. So it's not a trivial problem when it occurs. Now, how common is that? Probably less than 10% of stented type B dissection will go to 
retrograde type A. How much less than 10%, that's somewhat unclear. But it is certainly a finite uh, number that is, uh, is of concern. That's why a completely uncomplicated type B probably should still be treated medically today, uh, at least up front. Now, as the type B dissection becomes more mature and less acute, you know, what is that? Maybe two weeks? In that range, the retrograde type A dissection risk probably decreases, which is why if you can wait a week or two, intervention may be safer in a patient who may have soft indication for intervention. Again, soft meaning radiologic malperfusion, a large false lumen, uh, or uncontrollable hypertension. Now, uncontrollable hypertension is often used as an excuse to intervene in a patient who has otherwise has no other indication. However, there is such a thing as patient who are so difficult to manage medically that you worry about what's going to happen to this now dissected aorta. So there, there is a role, uh, you know, you have to use that not as an excuse, but as a good uh, additional softer indication. And if you can wait a couple of weeks, the retrograde type A dissection risk should be lower. It's never zero, but it should be lower. In regards to the diagnostic modalities that you would use um, when working up this patient in the emergency room, what would be your preference? The CT angiogram is the gold standard. There really is no substitute for that. Uh, echocardiogram is important. You want to make sure that there isn't any retrograde component, that the aortic valve is otherwise okay, that the heart function is otherwise okay, that there isn't any other additional issue. Many of these patients are hypertensive. Some of them may have coronary disease, may have vascular disease elsewhere. So other tools to make sure that we're, we're not dealing with concomitant problem uh, are useful. I mean, typically, almost everybody that comes in with a type B should have an echo uh, to just exclude other problems and, and if they're there to know and be able to manage them appropriately. Beyond that, you know, it's hard to, to uh, add too many other tests. Uh, obviously, assessment chemical assessment for renal dysfunction, you know, creatinine is important as a baseline. Mm -hmm. Many of these patients will bump their creatinine. Some of it is due to their contrast load that you get from the CT angiogram. Uh, some of it is due to the partial or complete malperfusion of one kidneys. So you, you need to follow that. Um, beyond that, uh, I think those, those are kind of the, the, the baseline uh, exam that you have to have. Okay. And then in regards to management of patients for hypertension, do you have any preferences in the medications that are used and what parameters we should be keeping their um, blood pressures within? So the, the classic uh, management of type B dissection is beta blockers, which are often limited by heart rate. You, when you get to a certain heart rate below which you really can't safely go, then you have to add something else. And the, the something else typically tends to be a calcium blocker um, and, uh, and then some vasodilator as, as tolerated. Uh, now, early on, there is reluctance to use ACE inhibitor and ARP because of the kidney issue, and, and that kidney issue is real. On the other hand, they can be used with, with some 
knowledge of what the consequences could be to, to add uh, additional uh, blood pressure control. Many of these patients will need three or four or five agents to get their blood pressure finally stabilized. Um, now, as far as the acute management, the, the classic intravenous medication that are given, uh, in, in my book are nicardipine, that's a calcium blocker, or labetalol. Those are kind of your standard starting point ICU type management to get the blood pressure under control. I don't like to use esmolol, that's used a lot, and you know I think labetalol is easier and has a better effect on blood pressure, not just on heart rate. Esmolol, I think, uh, 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 mostly lowers the heart rate. It doesn't do as much to the bit to the to the uh, to the blood pressure. Um, and then other similar medication can be added as needed. I try to avoid, and right now, luckily, it's so expensive that people avoid it anyway, nipride, because there could be too much of a roller coaster ride, uh, you know, going up and down. Uh, so I personally don't use it, and I would uh, argue against using it. Um, now, being as expensive as it is nowadays, it makes it easier. So it's often not even on the formulary in a lot of hospitals. Where is your range of blood pressure going into an operative situation would you be comfortable with? So, I mean, the goal is normal, you know, 120 over 17, you know, classic normal blood pressure. Obviously, some of these patients are, are chronically so hypertensive that to make it normal will give them renal dysfunction, and often they will become confused because their brain doesn't get perfused well enough. So there is a balance. Uh, so you aim for normal, and you kind of see clinically what the patient tolerates. If there is a question of a contained rupture, then obviously even a little bit lower than normal would be appropriate until you can fix the issue. And most of the time, fixing the issue means an endograft. Uh, if a patient has a true acute malperfusion uh, or contained ruptures, you know, a true complicated type B, they need intervention right away. And that's typically an endovascular stand graft from the splavian to the ciliac uh, if it's a contained rupture. Um, because you don't really know where the, where the leak is and you, you need to cover the entire thoracic aorta. But if the patient does not have a complicated type B, then, then you adjust the blood pressure as clinically indicated. You want to ideally get the pain under control, and often the pain correlates with blood pressure. Not always, but most of the time. Uh, and if the pain is under control and, and you, end organs are perfused adequately, then observation and, and, and see what happens. You typically want to repeat a CT scan because, you know, you have a patient, you know what you start with. Usually within a week, assuming the patient is stabilized, uh, sometimes the patient looks good and the hospital wants the patient out because it's expensive to just watch them in the hospital, so maybe it's five days, maybe it's four days. Typically a week is when you, you kind of know if you're going to have an expansion, a rapid expansion, you're going to get, you're going to see it. Obviously, the patient does not have resolution of back pain, and you're concerned, you can repeat it at any point. You know? But if the patient stabilizes, blood pressure is good, pain is mostly gone, typically it's not completely gone, but it's mostly gone, then you should repeat it at a week or so. And of course, the, the, the problem there is that creatinine is already bumped, and you can't really assess the order unless you do a contrast study. So there is always that tension 
between you and the radiology and everybody else around you. You know, you, you need a CT with contrast. And everybody said, well, this creatinine is now 1.8. You know, what are we going to do? Where, on the other hand, if the order is unstable and you don't know, you could lose the patient. So there is always a, a tension there. Uh, but you need this, the repeat study. If that's stable, then you can relax and, and, and kind of get more in the chronic mode. Now, what are the parameters that would bring us to the operating room with this particular patient? Again, the, the absolute definition of complicated type B, rupture, real mob effusion with an organ uh, ischemia, uh, that is an absolute indication for intervention. Most of the time, that, that is endovascular. I, you know, you can still envision a few patients that may require open surgery. You know, those patients are going to typically not do very well. But, you know, if you're facing a, a situation that is not otherwise controlled, you know, you've you got to do what you've got to do. Retrograde type A extension, mm -hmm. that's another indication for surgery. It's pretty rare, but it could be either due to the disease itself. You, know, you could do it have a patient with a type B that stabilizes and then all of a sudden they get new chest pain and it could be a retrograde type A. They would need a standard type A operation with typically a frozen elephant trunk, meaning you want to put it endograft, antegrade through the open arch when you do the type A. Those patients typically don't do as well. A retrograde type A is a worse actor than a standard type A. Um, so, but on the other hand, that's the way to manage that that issue. Okay. In regards to the operative approach um, involving myocardial protection, hypothermic circulatory arrest, what are your goals? And well, most type B, you, you're not going to operate open, so all of those issues are not there. Obviously, if you had to operate in an open fashion, um, it's going to be difficult. Um, you know, um, the issues are where are you going to control the aorta? Obviously, it's typically dissected at the origin of the subclavian or there about in that neighborhood. So if you're going to clamp the aorta, you have to clamp it between the subclavian and carotid, um, you know, with partial bypass. That would be a, a less risky operation compared to going on full bypass, circarrest, open the arch, and, and sew a graft somewhere proximal to the subclavian, which in some patients may be required. That's, that's a big deal. Those patients may not do so well. Uh, be nice to avoid that. Um, okay. um, an alternative scenario for the patient is that he arrived in the ED um, with left leg numbness, no left femoral pulse, uh, and the leg is cold. Um, discuss your, the timing of surgery. In so I would take the patient to the operating room and uh, my first move, obviously look at the CT scan, see what the issues are. My first move would be to stent the thoracic aorta. I mean, it seems counterintuitive, you know, at first you say, well, the problem is this lag, why are you going after the thoracic aorta? My experience is that most of the time, re-expanding the true lumen in thoracic aorta fixes the downstream malperfusion. Um, so so I, that would be my first move. If it doesn't fix it, then you have to go further down and deal with, with the peripheral vascular issues uh, secondarily. And uh, the, I've been in a situation where I've stented the abdominal aorta below the kidneys, sometimes with a 
open web, not a cover stand, depending how big the aorta is, and that can open the iliacs into the affected limb, but sometimes you have to put more stents in, in the, uh, into the iliofemoral system, uh, depending on the anatomy. Now, the alternative in, in, in places where you don't have the sophisticated endovascular management available is to do a fem-fem crossover bypass. That's kind of the old-fashioned way of doing it. I think stenting the thoracic aorta takes care of that most of the time, but you have to have sort of a, a backup plan, and that would be a backup plan. The patient woke up and wasn't able to move his legs. Um, in regards to the risks of paraplegia with both open and endovascular repair, um, any preoperative precautions that should be taken? I mean, clearly when you cover the entire thoracic aorta, uh, you, you, you are at some risk of decreasing blood flow to the, to the uh, spine. Um, once you have stented the thoracic aorta, it, it's going to be more difficult to keep the blood pressure very low. Um, my experience is that I've been pleasantly surprised that in a patient that does not have additional abdominal aortic intervention in the past, so they've not had a graft, they've not had additional stenting, I found that issue to be pretty uncommon, even in acute setting. Uh, I've had very few patients with type B dissection that you stent the thoracic aorta develop paraplegia because they have so many other collaterals. Now, one of the issues is often when you stand to type B, you end up covering the subclavian, and that's a big source of blood flow to the spinal cord. So often you may have to do secondarily a cardiac bypass if you're concerned. Again, my experience is that most of the time the patient does just fine acutely, even without a cardiac bypass. If you can more electively do it, I would definitely, in a more elective uh, setting, would consider that. Now, there are patients that present with their main mouth perfusion being the spinal cord. And those patients are unfortunately difficult to manage because most treatment of mouth perfusion may make the spinal cord injury worse. My experience is that most of the patients that present with spinal cord mouth perfusion tend to be type B intramural hematoma rather than standard type B free-flowing false lumen, which is a variant which I find difficult to manage because patients often are older. They often present with more subtle finding, and, and uh, those are the patients, in my experience, that more commonly, again, it's a rare complication, but what it happens is more common in intramural hematoma type B dissection rather than standard type B. Presumably, they don't just occlude some intercostal in the chest, but the intramural hematoma may occlude many intercostal all the way up and down the thoracic and abdominal aorta, which is why some of these patients present with paraplegia as their presenting symptoms. Some of them may resolve on their own, which is kind of, again, some of those vessels were closed up front and somewhere or another, you know, it's a very dynamic physiology early on, they may just reopen them and reestablish adequate flow. Um, you know, so supportive care is important um, and sometimes telling the family that this is not going to recover, you know, I've been wrong once. When I, I went and talked to the family, I thought this was bad and nothing, you know, and the patient 
two days later was able to move his leg. You know, it, um, but there is there is a situation where where things can resolve. But in general, our treatment options are limited. One more scenario: um, a patient with a previously uncomplicated type B dissection several years ago returns with pain. CT scan shows a descending aorta now seven centimeters. How would you approach this case? So. The most common indication today for open thoracic and thoracoabdominal repair is a chronic type B dissection. So many of those patients uh, are often treated medically and sometimes forgotten, you know, left without close follow-up, and will represent with a very large false lumen, which may start to leak. Uh, and my guess is that this patient would be leaking from that large false lumen. So the problem with that is endovascular therapy has a role, uh, but the success rate is, is uh, not guaranteed. Um, so the issue in, in that scenario is, is, is the patient able to tolerate an open operation? Uh, does the patient have collagen vascular disease? Uh, are the, is the anatomy suitable potentially for an endovascular approach? And, and obviously, the devil is always in the details. You want to have a good landing zone proximally. You want to have some reasonable uh, ability to expand the true lumen. Uh, you want to have the chance of excluding the majority of the false lumen, at least in the chest. And the anatomy will tell you whether it's even feasible or not. And if it's not feasible, and the patient can tolerate an open operation, that may be what the patient needs. If the anatomy is reasonable and the patient is older, then that may be an approach worth pursuing. Um, you know, it, if a patient has a true rupture, um, then, then you're in a bind because uh, sometimes a true rupture can be dealt with by an endovascular approach in the chronic type B dissection. If it's just a, a expansion or a contained leak, uh, you know, you, you, you may have a little bit more leeway to use endovascular tools. Uh, obviously, if the patient is young and has collagen vascular disease, then, then you, you need to do an open operation. Thank you, Dr. Pocatino. I appreciate your time and discussion on type B um, aortic dissection. You're welcome. Uh, All right.